your career, you went from zero to a hundred in nine months. What's a lesson you learned during that time period that you would offer to listeners who want to start something and make it successful? Yeah, determination. Nothing is going to stop you. This is your life. Welcome back to Lead the Team with number one best-selling author and in-demand corporate trainer, Ben Fanning. On this podcast, the world's most innovative senior leaders share their top success strategies to motivate your direct reports, cultivate your top leaders, and accelerate your career. Let's get started. Here's Ben. Hey there, Lead the Team Nation. Welcome back to another great episode today. Woo, I got a big one coming directly to you. Tetris. Yes, that Tetris is the most popular video game in history with over $520 million in sales and billions of sessions played every year. My daughter and I were actually playing it this morning. It's even made its way into the common vernacular, like when you're trying to pack a car with people or items. People say, hey, you know, we're playing Tetris. Yes, this is Tetris. And my guest today, Hank Rogers, made it all happen. He created the first role-playing game in Japan early on and then discovered Tetris at a trade show. His adventures eventually took him behind the Iron Curtain to Moscow, Russia, or it was Soviet Union at the time, to get the Tetris rights. And they made it into a worldwide phenomenon, which 30 years later remains a bestseller and global icon of gaming culture. He since founded something really cool, Blue Planet Energy to put Hawaii on the path to 100% renewable energy by 2045. His storied life is so incredible. There's even a movie about his adventures and, um, and about Tetris. Hank Rogers, so excited to have you on the show today. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Oh, man, y'all. We are, we're going to have some fun here. So even though Tetris gets all the fame, your first computer game got off to a terrible start. What happened? Uh, well, <laughs> it's funny because SoftBank, which was uh, at the time only a, a, a software distribution company, initially ordered 3,000 copies. And what happened was, you know, I did a little bit of advertising with the little money that I had. Nobody in Japan knew what a role-playing game was. We didn't get, we got zero mm reaction from the uh from the ads and so they reduced their order to 600 and i thought oh no we're sunk we can't you know survive with that and uh well january came and i asked my guys so how do japanese people find out about computer games as well they read about them in the in the magazines well how do you get into a magazine and they, they said well you have a hit and then they come and interview you well that's obviously not happening so i just de i decided to turn things around i I visited every magazine in Japan, the computer game magazine, hmm. taught them how to play the game, and then left them to play it. And uh, a couple of months later, well, the, the next month, rave reviews came up in every single magazine. And so our next our next order was 10,000 copies. And wow. every month, 10,000, 10,000, 10,000. So we were the number one game in uh, in Japan in 1984. So you so, had to introduce this whole role-playing concept that didn't really even exist in Japan. As I understand, yeah. you were inspired by your days of playing Dungeons and Dragons, right? Which is in all paper-based. Yeah. And a lot of people, you know, I think they would have, well, my, my, you know, things aren't working. I'm going to talk to my team. I want to 
you know, I'm just going to make a bunch of adjustments. What inspired you? Like, I need to go to the source. I need to go to the source, understand what's happening with the magazines, and then teach them. Show them how to play the game. Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, like, you got to <laughs> do what you got to do. This is this is like entrepreneurship 101. I, you know, things don't always work out the way you think. In fact, most of the time they don't. And then you've got to figure it out. You've got to survive. You've got to figure out, you know, how do you get past that hurdle? And I've had a number of hurdles like that. And that's just the, that's just the job. If you're running a company. Well, I want to point out to the listeners too. And, and we, through the research and listening to all of your interviews, you didn't like, no one taught you business, right? You were a creator of games first. And then he jumped into the business side. Well, you know, I worked for my father and watched him do business, but he was a terrible businessman. I, I got to say, I mean, he was a he was a great idea man, a great Sorry, salesperson, Dad. but he he never ever did any accounting or pay taxes. Just to give you an idea, and so nobody knew what was going on in the business, and that's just not the way you run a business. You know, you have to set up, you know, the different departments, and they have to take care of take care of the business even if you're not there every business he ever created fell apart when he left and mm. so i was you know so i i learned a lot about what not to do <laughs> well sometimes that's the best teacher yeah right? exactly. like dad's dad's always got these new ideas but i don't really see cash coming into the household what's yeah. happening and so well, he, yep. yeah yeah no he he would go through all of a sudden he'd have all kinds of money and then it would all fall apart and he'd have to do it all over again with a different business. And that was just his, um, his thing. So anyway, yeah, I like the idea of consistency. So mm -hmm. then, yeah. And where, anyway. so where did you learn this? Did you just sort of figure it out? It sounds like you're just kind of figuring out at this point how to make a game. Like you were the creator and figuring out that piece. And then you moved into the well, business side, but as a creator, how'd well, you, how'd you figure it out? Put, put it, put it this way. Before I did black onyx, all I had ever done was homework assignments. So I knew mm -hmm. I knew how to program and mm -hmm. I knew the essence of, of role-playing. I knew those two things. I had no idea what it was going to take to make actual in a computer game. So, uh, when I did it, that was, that was a huge leap. And wow. I think it was a huge accomplishment because I went from zero to making a, a you know, a, a great computer game in, I don't know, nine months while I did it. And then business, I had always hated the concept of being a businessman before that. Mm -hmm. I was never going to wear a suit. I was never going to work nine to five. I was a hippie. And uh, here I am in Japan. I don't speak, read or write Japanese at this point. So wow. here I'm starting starting a publishing company without you know with all those handicaps and somehow i managed to manage so to speak so yeah all is all hard knocks well everything the the cards are stacked against you not even especially not even speaking the language i'm trying to imagine and i'm trying to this company all right so what is so obviously th this piece of your career ends up being successful what is your advice for people who, as you say, like, like in your career, you went from zero to a hundred in nine months. What's a lesson you learned during that time period that you would offer to listeners who want to start something and make it successful? Yeah. Determination. You need a big shot of determination. Nothing is going to stop you from <laughs> doing what you want to do. This is, this is your life. This is your way to 
uh, get out of the whatever the um, the rat race, you know, because because you could be you could get a job, and you could be working your job for the for your entire life, and will you have accomplished your dream? Mm. And the answer is probably not. You need to step outside of the box in order to, I don't know, to to find your dream and to chase your dream and be determined to achieve your dream. So let's let's break this down. We're going to get into some other parts of your career, but this is obviously like a theme for you because you've overcome so many hurdles. And we haven't gotten to all these other ones with licensing (laughs) and the different worldwide coming country. Wait, is this is determination something that you've chosen to foster in yourself, or is it just something that you've or inherently had since the day you were you're born here on this planet? I I I don't know if I had it since the day I was born, but uh, I did after watching my dad, you know, mess around with business, uh, have the determination that I was going to be better than him. Mm. So I had a little bit of a boost there. I, I was lucky. In other words, I could see him being smart, mm-hmm. and yet I could couldn't see him being like a businessman. And so I said, "I was, you know, I'm going to make more money than you." <laughs> that's that's all right, kind of all right. you know, because my dad always looked at me and said, "You know, like you're playing games, or you're not very serious, or this or that, or the other thing." He always, you know, oh. I know everything, and you know nothing. So I mean, like. His his argument in an argument we'd argue about things. His argument would be, uh, "When have I ever been wrong?" <laughs> Ooh, and you've dad. been wrong all the. You're Don't wrong set all the that time. up, Dad. <laughs> it's <laughs> like you've been. <laughs> when well, have I ever been wrong? It's like wow. It's like it's you don't know anything. I know everything. You know. <laughs> anyway, so so it's interesting, like that, like that, and I can see your dad be like, "Son, all you're doing." Is sitting around playing Dungeons and Dragons and games all day that you're never going to amount to anything playing those games. I, a lot of people said that to me, but my dad wasn't around when I was playing D and D in Hawaii. I was okay. on my own, so yeah, he didn't get to see that part. But it's well, fine. You a, well, you had the courage, and just the tip of the hat, to follow your dream and what you liked, even if you didn't have the bigger vision at the time. You had, you knew what you enjoy, which is playing games. Right? That was that well, drew you. And you're like, maybe there's something here. And I knew I wanted to create something. I'm I'm a very creative person. So, yeah. well, so let's talk about that. There was a moment in your career in, in my research where we were kind of piecing all this together, where you had success as a creator, but then you're like, wait a minute, I'm I'm that there's a bigger opportunity here to not create games anymore but to go out and identify new ones. And you made that, that, that change fairly early. I made the first two games. So um, I spent a year making Black Onyx and mm-hmm. then I had a company, publishing company, and then I spent another year making its sequel, The Fire Crystal. And what happened was the company just wasn't being the run, run the way I, I thought the company was being. I had my, my buddy from college run the company. And there's two things. One is um, I, I came to the realization that I couldn't be, how can I say, programming for the rest of my life because it's it's a stamina thing. My mm. my wife and children never got to see me for those two years, for example, because you're working day and oh. night. Programmers never stop. You just go and go yeah. and go. I've heard you refer but, to it. You didn't want her to become a, quote, computer widow. No, she was a computer widow. Or she for was two one. Years. She was one. 
because you were just sitting there pounding the keys and and this is like my kids are 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 like i don't know what um at this point they're like two four and six you know so these are the wonderful years for your children they're cute and they're little and they're you know and i was missing that so anyway i I made the decision that i was going to focus on running the company and i would hire programmers to do the programming and instead of me coming up with the idea for the game, I would travel around the world looking for games to bring to Japan. Because that's, you know, at the time, movies and music were coming from other countries. And so I knew that, you know, games should be coming from other countries as well. Wow. All right, a couple of things there. Uh, did you feel like you were giving up your creative side a little bit, that, like your passion of the creation, or just sort of like the natural evolution <clears throat> of who you're becoming? I didn't give it up. I mean, I have, you know, the Japanese computers were intrinsically different from the American or, or European computers. Mm-hmm. We had, be- we had better graphics in Japan because in Japan, they had to have the Japanese or Chinese character, the kanji on the screen. So mm-hmm. the screen had to be high resolution. Whereas the Apple II and the Commodore 64 and the TR- TRS-80, they all had crappy graphics, not good enough that you could sell those machines in 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 the in Japan. Sorry, Steve Jobs. Yeah. And so, um, well, I mean, he fixed it by coming up with the Mac. Are you kidding? <laughs> he worked me? it out eventually. <laughs> he worked it out. He worked it out. <laughs> and so, anyway, um, I had a lot to do with the the games as they were being converted into the for the Japanese market. Okay. So you're still involved in that piece. You still held on to some oh, of yeah. the creative, to sort of get that creative buzz that you saw, but you evolved to the business side. Yeah. What, one of the things that that comes up thematically in your career, a couple of things. Uh, one is incredible vision, uh, where you could see ahead, and we'll get into Game Boy, you know, partnering it, uh, uh, matching it, you know, with with um, Tetris, Tetris, developing the relationship with Alexei Pajanov. I'm saying that right. I just, the more I read about your career, I'm like, this guy seems like he's seeing ahead. Well, like even that, that, that legendary moment of seeing Tetris at that trade show and no one's playing it. Right. And you go, over well, there. I, no, I wouldn't say no one was playing it. People were playing it, but they play it and not realize how groundbreaking this game actually is, even though they're playing it at the time I went to the, one of the biggest publishing companies, Broderbund and, uh, you know, I met with the president I and I asked him, so have you, did you guys look at Tetris? Is Yeah, we looked at Tetris. I play it every day. So you play it every day? And I said, yeah, well, what, what happened? How come you didn't license it? Well, you know, I have somebody in charge of licensing and he passed on it. <laughs> so like, dude. And I want to paint the picture, right? The world is obsessed with Super Mario Brothers and Zelda, right? Okay. A little bit that time, which is a different y'all. If y'all haven't played these two games, I mean, they couldn't be more different, right? And you right. saw something, and it, just this idea of leadership vision comes to mind when I'm like reading and going through all this. And is this what do you do? I mean, do you just see this stuff, or have you fostered it, or have you been have you had role models of great vision, or what's um, where does this come from? You know, it, it comes from. Uh, comes from a lot of different things. I would say that part of it comes from my father because for <laughs> as as bad as bad as a businessman as he was, 
he saw like new businesses all the time. That's how his mind worked. Mm. And so, you know, you know, I, 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 I talk like he didn't teach me anything, but he, but certainly he did. He's my role model for starting new businesses. Mm. He's also my role mo- role model for failing in business. <laughs> so, so that's the yin and yang I, of a great, great mentor. I, 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 yeah, I took the I took the part of of coming up with the great ideas and 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 chasing them down from him, and then put a little sensible business practice it, behind it. The the other thing that I've noticed about your career. It's not just having the vision, but you're able to enroll people in that vision. And that's a big problem for great visionaries. A lot of times they can cast a big vision, but people are like, I'm not following that, or I'm not getting on board with that. I mean, you you were able to sell your vision for Tetris to a lot to the world. Otherwise, it'd just be sitting back at that trade show. Probably. <clears throat> I, I I I don't know that for a fact. You know, Tetris might have found its way anyway. Somebody else would have found it and and done what I did. Uh, there were other people. I wasn't the only one in Moscow looking for the for the Tetris rights. Mm. Kevin Maxwell was there, right? I mean, if you've seen the movie, then you can see there were other people. Mm. I just had to be faster than everybody else in figuring it out and making a decision, and that that was always my advantage because in I was the president of the company in Japan of a publishing company. So ultimately I could make the decision and other company, bigger companies would have like managers and they would, they would like ask all the managers to agree. <laughs> they did this. The, the biggest company in Japan at the time, ASCII basically passed on Tetris and they said, and, and you know, asked them why. And this is, well, it's, it, it, it was too retro. <laughs> well, it kind of retro. is. <laughs> it was too retro in 1980. This is 1989, 1988. Yeah. They said the computer hasn't been around the, that long for this game too, to be that retro. It's uh, retro. It, you yeah. know, it looks too simple. So, so when you're approaching meetings, and there's one meeting I want to ask you about uh, in a second, but when you're approaching these meetings with the the Soviet Union. Or to go in and, and try to sell someone to 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 put your game in the Game Boy uh, when it comes out. How do you think about these meetings and approach them to make them successful? Before I go, I do think about what it is my what my objective is, and I stay on that objective. You know, you have to doggedly go after your objective because you know you you're in a meeting and and things will go into tangents. But you have to bring the conversation back to why you're there and what you're trying to accomplish. You know, my yeah. my when my first foray in, in Moscow is the guy shows me, like uh, I, I show him my, my game that I published in Japan on on Nintendo, and then he looks at it and he says, "We never licensed console to anyone," and I'm like, "Holy shit! Oh, this is bad news." So, so you I, have it in physically in your hand. We didn't license it. And at that moment in time, I had used all of my in-laws property to as, as collateral for buying cartridges. So if somebody came along and said, no, you can't publish that game, I, I, they would have lost everything. And yeah. yet I was there for the Game Boy. So I, I said, you know, because that's a big problem. And that could derail my entire negotiation about because that is a big problem. I, I really have yeah. to solve that problem. 
but I was there to get the Game Boy rights. So I decided to focus on the Game Boy rights, get them first. And it took me like a little over a week, maybe maybe 10 days to to get the Game Boy rights. Mm-hmm. And then at the end of it, then they said, let's talk about the Nintendo nice. rights, the console. So, so you that focused was on what they could go in that. And that, that was a high stakes negotiation. And y'all, it yeah. doesn't get more high stakes when you've got all of your in-laws property that you can put <laughs> up as collateral. We're like, wait, I know I can talk about Game Boy rights and, and achieve that. And once we do that, then we, you, re, you circled back to that conversation and you're able to address the console issue. Yeah, because, Very because that, was a, that was a hornet's nest. The, the, the console rights, I realized that, that, you know, lots of different companies were involved and there would be potential litigation and all those kinds of things because every, you know, I licensed those guy those the, the rights from Atari, and Atari licensed those rights from Mirrorsoft. Yeah. So I mean, like, who who in that thing is was lying? Somebody was lying yeah, somewhere. Somebody he went right somewhere along the lines, and it just perpetuated yeah, yeah. to that to that yeah. moment. Yeah. 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 A great example of having the vision, and then when you start these high stakes negotiations as a leader, you know, having the as Stephen Covey says, begin with the end in mind and get there. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things I've been curious about, um, and I'm I'm encouraging the listeners to read about it, watch the movie, understand this, because there's a bigger story here. There's a point in your in your journey where you needed to get introduced to Nintendo. So before you were talking to anybody about the Game Boy, and it had oh yeah, this is break, did, yeah, this was, is this this goes back. Um, so we were publishers of. Uh, personal computer software in Japan mm-hmm. and the five top companies which included me went to Nintendo and said let us publish games for Nintendo and and we got to meet number two and number two said no you guys don't know anything about how to make Nintendo games and so we all did you know they had just you know said we're not going to be publishers and then uh, months later my wife read an article uh, in a magazine saying Mr. Yamuchi plays Go." And I had, as one of the submissions, because people used to send me games to publish in Japan, was a Commodore 64 9 by 9 Go game from England. And that Commodore 64 has the same CPU as the Nintendo machine. And so mm-hmm. I knew that the algorithm would be able to be moved as is. They wouldn't have to change anything because it already worked. This is like the, the most mm-hmm. complicated AI problem ever. And now somebody's figured out how to do it in an 8-bit computer, which is amazing that it played it all. And so I wrote Mr. Yamochi a fax. Mr. Yamochi, my name is Hank Rogers. I can make a Go game for your Nintendo machine. I'm leaving for the States on Saturday. I would like to see you before I leave. I didn't tell him I lived in Japan. (laughs) (laughs) I left out that little detail. So so you created urgency, like, hey, if you want want to play this Go game, you yeah. gotta, I, I gotta show it to you now because I'm leaving. Okay. So, anyway, Wednesday, I get a fax. Mr. Yamochi will see you tomorrow. Um, my meeting was like unbelievably fast. It was Mr. Mr. Yamochi says, uh, I can't give you any programmers. I said, I don't need programmers. I have programmers. I just need money. How much money? I'm like, I haven't even thought about this before. So, I thought of the biggest number I could think of at the time $300,000. And he reached across the table and said, Deal. That was it. It's like, holy smokes. So anyway, I went back to my office and called a guy in England, said, you 
I'd never even spoken to him. I didn't know him at all. Uh, I said, you're coming to Japan and you're going to move, help me move your game to the Nintendo machine. You can stay at my house. And for, for nine months he stayed and we, and we did. And the next meeting with Yamauchi was Yamauchi playing the game. And I could see him fumbling with the controller. He'd never freaking hold, held a controller in his hand before. He was running oh Nintendo. He was running Nintendo. <laughs> And so I, he hands I run a the controller. company that has the games, but I don't play the games. No, I don't play it. I don't know. I don't do yeah. any of that. So he hands the <laughs> controller to his underling, and he points on the screen. I want to go there. I want to go there. I want to go there. After one game, after playing just one game, he says, it's not strong enough for Nintendo. And I'm like, Mr. Yamuchi, this is an 8-bit computer. It's a miracle that it can play Go at all. And mm. he says, again, it's not strong enough for Nintendo. Like, what part of... It's not strong enough uh, for Nintendo. Did you not understand? You know, and I like, I like. What do I do now? And I, anyway, so I, I think fast as a Mr. Yamuchi. It maybe it's not strong enough for Nintendo, but it's strong enough for my company. Let me publish it. And then he said, "What about my money?" And he said, "I'll pay you a dollar a unit until you get your money back." Mm. And he reached across and he said, "Deal." That was it. That's how I became a Nintendo publisher. Well, and so Go gets on Nintendo, but it was on through Nintendo. your company. Right. It had and, to work uh, out. My, my, ah, we sold 150,000 units. He didn't get his money back. But, but, but you know, uh, Tetris, which was my third game, uh, sold 2 million copies. So we're all good, you know? Yeah, they made a little money on that. <laughs> they made yeah. a little money. And then, and then on Game Boy... That was like thirty something million units, so that was a oh good deal gosh, too. That's insane. Want to boost your productivity and decision making? Get vital insights from each episode delivered directly to your inbox. A great resource whether you've listened to the episode or not. Go to benfanning.com slash insight. So breaking this down as I'm sort of filtering it through this, as I hear you identifying or your wife seeing that Mr. Yamaguchi liked Go in that magazine. Yeah. You're like, this is something that he is interested in. The key decision makers interested in Go. And so he plays that, Go and I play Go. That was the one play. thing. Yeah. He's a six degree black belt and I'm a three degree black belt. Wow. And so after yeah. I established a relationship with him, I would go and whenever I had a meeting with him, I would, we would make it the last meeting of the day. And then we would play goal the rest of the day, just the two of us. So I was the, I was the only one that had that kind of relationship with the Yamauchi where we would spend time together, just time. Cause you know, when in, in his business meeting, he just gets them done. Boom, 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 done. Shake hands. That's it. You know, the world can be so transactional, but finding a way to interact with somebody over a game. And by the way, I'm not exactly sure what Go is. I think it's a, it's like a, it's a Japanese board game, black and white stones on a wooden board. It is an order of magnitude more complicated than chess. Hmm. So chess, you know, computer AI beat the world champion chess many years ago. But just last year, or yeah, just recently, AI got to the point where it could 
win a beat again, beat a human and go. So, so it's more complicated. You know, a lot of people play. And so you found that common ground. Oh yeah. That fostered the relationship because years later, when you had more to talk about beyond go business wise, I suspect he gave you helpful feedback, even though maybe the first game wasn't a huge win. He remembered you. Oh yeah. And, uh, oh yeah. I mean, like, you, Certainly. And, and, you know, I learned a lot from him. He, he, in Go, there's no such thing as being nice to somebody ever. Uh, okay. You're, it's, it's, it's war. You fight for every point. You know, in, in, um, I'm going to say golf is different. Everybody's being nice to each other and you're getting along and you're, you're not like, how can I say, trying to mess up somebody's game or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's, it's nice. It's all about being, how can I say, being honest and all that. Whereas Go is all about, you know, take that point. I don't, I don't care. There's no, there's no emotion in Go. So anyway, uh-huh. that's the way he ran his business. There's no emotion in his business at all. And if I wanted to make some money by doing business uh, with Nintendo, I would have to take it. I couldn't, he wasn't going to give it to me. Mm. I, I would have to. And uh-huh. I did. I stood, stood my ground. There was a one point at which he wanted to get the Tetris rights. He wanted to get the Tetris rights. Mr. Yamauchi, this is my this is my game. Okay. Mario is your game. If you want to say take Tetris and give me Mario, okay, we can talk about it. But Tetris is my game. So <laughs> 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 Wow. That's a bold conversation. Yeah, there you go. That's cool. Yeah, I'll I'll take Mario if you want to. Yeah, you can do something with Tetris. <laughs> So fast forward from there, and thank you for sharing that on the relationship. I think leaders can really benefit from hearing how that played out and they think about their own negotiations and how they foster relationships and how they also get meetings with people that are sometimes tough to do. Thinking about later coming to the Game Boy, why not Super Mario on the Game Boy package with oh, versus Tetris? On. There's there's a couple of reasons. One is is the screen. It, you know, if you're looking at a TV screen, Mario looks nice. It's color and there's there's lots of resolution and so on. When you shrink that down to a tiny screen, it's hard to see all the stuff, all the little whatever. I had Super Mario. Yeah, and, and I agree, and, it was hard to see. And <laughs> and who play who plays Mario? It's little boys. So my understanding of Tetris at that time was that there wasn't anybody who doesn't play Tetris. I mean, women, men, children, old people, it was a complete spectrum of everybody. So every human being, once they play Tetris, they can't stop. And I realized that. And I, so when I was with Mr. This is Mr. Arakawa and, and he was trying to decide what to pack in with uh, Game Boy. I said, Mr. Arakawa, you should pack in Tetris. And he said, why should I pack in Tetris? I have Mario. And I said, well, if you want little boys to play your Game Boy, then pack in Mario. But if you want everyone to play your Game Boy, then pack in Tetris. <laughs> Leadership that, vision. That line, that line came made it all the way into the movie because I worked <laughs> on the script. <laughs> that so, is so cool, man. Yeah. That is so cool. And the rest is history, sort of. Then you had another problem. Uh, You had to go to Moscow. And wow. I mean, that's a whole nother saga. Question for you. 
what did you, other than, you know, beginning with the end in mind, uh, in terms of negotiation strategy, what lessons did you learn negotiating with the Soviet Union for the Tetris rides? Well, okay. So first of all, the Soviet Union, they really were not businessmen. There's no such thing as business in the Soviet Union. It was just everything was decided uh, top down. And so good. basically my tact, and but this has always been my tact, is, was to be completely open with them and explain to them how the business worked and how they were going to get their money. And I don't think that anybody had done that up till then. Before, they had done a, a uh, I think they were getting 6% of 6% of 6%, which is nothing. You know, by the time it got to them, they licensed it to somebody in Hungary, who licensed it to somebody in England, who licensed it to somebody in the States, who licensed it to me. My my royalty statement hadn't even reached there from four quarters ago. Mm. You know, that, that's, oh. that was just ridiculous, the way the way it worked. And they'd never figured that out. They, they, you know, and so I said, look, I'll give you a fixed sum. I'll give you 25 cents per unit for every copy of Tetris that is sold on Game Boy. Doesn't matter how many, how many people in between me and Nintendo, you're always going to get your 25 cents. And, and I think it dawned on them, like they were getting completely ripped off on the PC side. And I was just being honest with them. And that's, that's how I managed to beat kevin maxwell because kevin maxwell you know was pulling you know power from the politburo because his father knew gorbachev whatever mm. so it was um i think honesty and straightforward that really worked for me and it works for me i should say i mean i've always been that way and i can't understand somebody who isn't that way but i guess many people are they're <laughs> they try to deceive you and then they have to remember what, what they lied to you about and remember for the next time. It's just a waste of time. Just tell the truth. Well, it's, it's interesting. A lot of people do want to control the information. They don't want to reveal everything. They want to be very strategic about it. And you took a very, I'm going to help you. I'm going to educate you. I'm going to win you with the relationship side, mm -hmm. which you've done. It seems like a theme throughout your career. Uh, so so powerful and i noticed when i was reading or listening to some other interviews you describe a moment in the negotiations where you felt like you need to get more forceful oh yeah in the what happened was well what happened was that you know where i'm explaining things to them about how the business the first the first real meeting was like a a three-hour third degree they were asking me everything like who the hell are you what are you doing here etc because they they you know i published their game without getting the rights that's where it starts you know what the hell's going on and they would from time to time in the conversation they would start arguing with each other mm. and it's like wow this is how they are with each other and so I have to be able to do that with them in order for them to, how can I say, respect me as a business person. And so when it when push came to shove, and they, you know they 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 wanted me to make a proposal, and so I made them a proposal in writing. I said this this is my offer, and if uh, they they asked me when are you coming back, I said I'm not coming back. You know, either we do a deal or we don't do a deal. Mm. But I, I'm here to do a deal. And it's just, you know, that's just not how business gets done. I leave here with the rights or without the rights. That's the way it goes. So I said, you have one week to 
to react to my offer. After that, this this offer is null and void. And I tried to put all kinds of legalese stuff in, <laughs> in there. And they got so, the message. Uh, they got the message. They they better make up their mind in that way. They heard me. It's great. Yeah, great lessons for leaders for us all to think about how the message is going to be heard. Doesn't matter what you say if they don't hear the message. Doesn't matter. And, and yeah, you and you you've you've got to talk to them on their terms. Sometimes you know, I'm a nice guy, but if nice guy doesn't like work, then you have to become you know serious from time to time. And I do. I I can totally do that. I can flip that switch. We're getting near all the time. <laughs> I got just a couple more questions. What in the world is it like having a movie made about you? <laughs> it's a little surreal, you know. It's it, part of me. I was terrified when they were going to make it, and uh, I read the script. We worked on the script, and it's and we fixed the parts that we could fix, but the Hollywood was like out of control. And uh, chases through Russia. Oh God! Oh come on. Uh, <laughs> you so, but. It turned into a great movie. So I went to the script. I couldn't see the movie by reading the script, but obviously the the director did. And boy, there's a difference between script and, you know, a movie. Oh, it's huge. There's so much left up to the director to, to decide everything. So, yeah, I think he did a great job. And, you know, I cried several times during the movie about things that never happened. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good movie, my friend. Yeah. Um, so I got to ask you, um, I'm going to fast forward the story. So the movie comes out, you know, much later than this. But so you you, you rush uh, Tetris is just, you know, you finally own it. You saw your company. It's like 130 plus million. I mean, is, is that right? Roughly. Oh, yeah, yeah, roughly. It's more than that, but fine. More, so, more than um, that. A, but then a what month, happens a, playing tennis? A, a month a month later, I find myself in the back of an ambulance with a hundred percent blockage of the widow maker. That is a heart attack. And ninety-five percent of the people who have a hundred percent blockage of the widow maker die. And so I I'm the lucky five percent. And why? Because I was being taken to the hospital for observation and lying in the back of the ambulance and you know. The siren goes on because they said they were not going to turn on the siren. The siren goes on. I know that I know something hit the fan. And I said, uh, I'm looking at the ceiling. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. I haven't spent any of the money yet. This is right after I sold my company, a month after I sold my it's company. It's all in the so, bank account. It's all, it's all being a wire transit. Yeah, exactly. And the second thing I said, no, I'm not going. I still have stuff to do. And uh, in the recovery room, I, I got to thinking about that. And I found my missions in life. I decided to look for my mission. I mean, the first one came to me right there in the in the back of the newspaper. It said, oh, by the way, we're going to kill all the coral in the world by the end of the century, caused by ocean acidification, caused by carbon dioxide, caused by us. So mission number one is to end the use of carbon-based fuel. So I set up a, a nonprofit in Hawaii to do Hawaii first, because I believe that we have to clean our room, own room before we ask others to clean theirs. And we put Hawaii on track to 100% renewable energy. Uh, we passed a mandate that says they have to do it by 2045. We changed the business model of the utility so they make more money by switching to renewables. Uh, Hawaii has already achieved its 2030 goal of 40% renewable energy for electricity. Yeah. 
So, and now I'm doing it. 12 other states have copied our legislation and I'm in New York working with island countries to do the same thing for the rest of the world. So mm -hmm. next week we're bringing eight island countries, people to Hawaii to show them what we did and send them back and say, go do what we did in Hawaii in your home country. Wow. So Tetris, you had a vision, but it wasn't the mission. Right. It, it, right. You know, the vision is to make a great game. And that, that's very nice. And that, like, is an extension of who I was when I was in college. But at a certain point in your life, you have to think about more than just, you know, what's fun and interesting. You have to think about why are you actually here? What's your mm -hmm. purpose? And, you know, you can write your epitaph if you like to do that exercise. And it'll tell you whether that was a good life you lived or whether there's another epitaph that says that, well, that's the real epitaph that I want. And then you can change direction and go after that epitaph. That's the one I'm on. I don't want to die. And, and it says, I'm like, you know, he, he found Tetris. You know, I, I wanted to say he did something about climate change. That's a mission. Wow. I got a huge chill, my friend. <laughs> yeah. um, we only have a few more minutes, but I, I want to make sure that you, so you mentioned climate change, but Blue Planet Energy or the, the hang on. has other piece. Right? So hang on. There's, there's a bunch of different Blue Planet. Blue Planet yeah. uh, Foundation in Hawaii, working to end the use of carbon-based fuel in Hawaii. Blue Planet Energy is a energy storage company. It's a for-profit. And we realized when Hawaii started getting too much solar, that we that the world was going to need storage and people weren't getting into storage yet. Homes need storage. Okay. So I took my ranch off grid, I took my house off grid, and then I started helping other people. That is a for-profit business called Blue Planet Energy. And we make the best okay. energy storage in the business. You know, it's all energy of the storage meaning solar panel type. No, meaning bad batteries that go along with the solar. Everybody okay. makes solar, but we are focused on the storage because yeah. that's the, the the still too expensive nut that has to be cracked. Mm -hmm. And then Blue Planet Alliance, my the third one is uh, here in New York, where I'm trying to do what I did in Hawaii and the U.S. for the rest of the planet because the mm -hmm. UN is here. So I'm working with the United Nations or around the United Nations. All nations have re representatives here. I'm. Yeah, I'm involved in trying to fix it that way. You are tackling huge problems that seem overwhelming to a lot of people. They're, yeah. So, <laughs> what, so where do we start with this? I mean, because a lot of people want to would love for climate change to go away, but it's it, it just seems oh, like it's inevitable. In no, no, no. So, so, so you've got to figure out what is the cause and solve the, and, and fix the cause. You know, like say we have a drug problem. Going after the drug lords isn't going to change the drug, drug problem. It just means new drug lords come up. Uh, if you want to fix the drug problem, then you have to figure out why are people taking drugs and solve that. Once you get rid of the demand, then those drug lords go away. So we have to figure out what's the where's the demand for oil, where's the demand for coal, where's the demand? And in Hawaii, it was electricity. 
we spent when we got started, we spent three billion dollars on oil and coal for making electricity, mm-hmm. and that so that's the biggest one. So let's go after that. Once we realize that switching to renewables saves money, then everybody's on our side. We we figured out how to make the help the electric company make more money by switching to renewables. They're our best friends now, so they're no longer trying to build another fossil fuel power plant or any of that. They're they're doing wind and solar, wind and solar, and geothermal. So that's the way it should be. And I like you know, that people ask, people ask people always they, in, in power they ask the quote unquote experts. You know, I, I remember being on a panel and I said we're going to go 100% renewable energy by 2045. The guy sitting next to me says, "I'm an expert in this. This is what I study at the university. There is no way we're going to be able to go 100% by 2045." And I said, "Well, I'm not as smart as this guy, so I'm going to do it anyway." Yeah, you know, I love it. Uh, and this, and we you are, believe it's possible. We, we are totally doing it anyway. You know, yeah. uh, it's it's obviously the experts thinking inside of a box, and and you know the Apollo rocket ship was built by engineers average age of twenty four. They didn't put any engineer on it who didn't think it could be done. Mm. They they yeah. And I, I'm sure that's the way SpaceX works. Is they only have people who who believe that something yeah. can get done, and they do it. That's all there is to it. There are plenty of naysayers out there. Get your team of people that believe it can happen. Yeah, and then put and them on the task. And we need to. We need everyone in the world to understand that we can solve climate change. Everybody needs to understand this. When everybody understands it, then we'll solve it. That's the much, I mean, that's the, that, that's the only way. If everybody thinks, oh, this ship is going to sink and we're all going to die, then the ship's going to sink and we're all going to die. But if everybody says, you know what, if we all bailed and fixed this ship, we did this and this, and we can fix this ship, then the, fix, the, the ship gets fixed and we survive. That's how a leader makes big things happen, my friend. <laughs> and by the way, people ask me if I have hope. I said, no, I don't have hope. I have determination. Hmm. Hope is like somebody's going to throw you a life preserver. No, it's sink or swim. You swim. You know how to swim. We have the money. We have the technology. We just have to get off our lazy butts and do it. Carpe diem. Seize the moment. Lead your team. But make sure you infuse it with a lot of determination determination. Hank, thanks for coming on the show today, sir. All right. Thank you. If you're an executive at a crossroads in your career and thinking about quitting, do this before you do anything else. Head over to benfanning.com slash quit to receive a free signed copy of my number one best-selling book, The Quit Alternative, The Blueprint for Creating the Job You Love Without Quitting. You'll learn the critical questions you must answer before you make such an impactful decision. Go to benfanning.com slash quit to get this valuable resource for just the cost of shipping. Ben Fanning is a number one best-selling author, Inc. Magazine columnist, and CEO of the Fanning Group, an international consultancy and corporate training company. To learn how they can help your organization, go to benfanning.com.